0: Let's take a look at John 7. What a joy it's been to have been through John 1 through 6 up to this morning. We're faster and faster approaching that the Lord has said to us through the Apostle John that these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. And uh, there's so much confusion about this. Why are we so passionate about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, we're passionate about the gospel of Jesus Christ because the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Another reason we're passionate about the gospel of Jesus Christ is that there are multiple false gospels. There's only one right and true and efficacious gospel. Only one. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. And so whatever gospel that is preached, which Paul refers to it as a gospel, and then he says, but it's not a gospel. What does he mean by that? It's a false gospel. It's a counterfeit. Whatever that is, whatever those are, they must be exposed as darkness under the light of the true gospel. Without doing a full review of chapters 1 through 6, uh, let me just say that at this point the Lord has displayed his deity and the Lord has displayed his humanity. And it takes a lot of lingual gymnastics to undo those realities. Some are much more inclined to undo his deity and attempt to do so by overemphasizing his humanity You say, how do you overemphasize a reality? You emphasize it so much with an effort to dismiss the reality of something else. So, his humanity is critical. That's the incarnation. But his deity is critical. That's the incarnation. We don't have the God man. We don't have the Savior. We don't have the Messiah. There is no Messiah without the Messiah being God, the God man. We teach the true Jesus of the Bible. You say, you know, I never really thought much about this. And maybe you're not saying that. But if you are saying that, I never really thought much about that. Can I just be lovingly bold? If you have not rested in the God-man, if you came to him as something other than the God-man, You have not rested in the Christ of the Bible. You've rested in a false Christ. It's a counterfeit, if that would describe you. I hope what's happening is you're saying, wow, that answers a lot of questions. That explains a lot of things. That explains why I have no spiritual growth, no victory over sin. That explains why I'm better at pretending to be a Christian than actually being one. Let's be lovingly honest. What's Jesus doing? He's lovingly displaying the fact that the masses are on their way to eternal condemnation. He calls them disciples. And what happens when he speaks of himself as the bread and the cup which you must eat and drink? What happens? Those that he calls disciples walk away. They walk away from him. And it's not just that the saying is too hard. It's the theology that the saying represents. It's just too easy for them to dismiss the metaphor by saying, he's crazy if he thinks I'm going to eat his flesh. They don't allow him to use metaphors. Why? Because it's easy to attack the metaphor, which is why Jesus goes along with the severity of figures of speech. That's why he uses figures of speech that feel and seem crazy to the unregenerate, so that he can carefully and lovingly draw a legitimate spiritual line between the regenerate and the unregenerate. And the evangelical church is all about blurring the lines. Let's make everybody comfortable, let's make everybody just be happy, let's just create an environment where, you know, there's no awkwardness. And it's not just because they're unregenerate. You need to understand that. It's because they have a clouded conscience. And they love living with a clouded conscience. Because that eliminates those things that prevent you from sleeping at night. But the reason we sleep, the reason we rest, the reason we have any joy at all is because we don't rest in our performance. You know, we look at our lives and we see all the, the glitches and the blips and the failures and the weaknesses and the iniquities and the transgressions, the sin. We look at all of that and we say, isn't it just unbelievably, amazingly loving that the Savior took every ounce of it and in so doing, he took our condemnation. He took our punishment. And so we can rest in that reality. And those among the masses who were following Jesus in some form of discipleship, mathetes, they were recipients of his traveling teaching effort. They showed themselves not to be interested in the bread of life eternal life. They wanted the bread of earthly life. Their focus was on the the earthly, not the eternal. Well, there's kind of our synopsis of uh, the last several chapters that lead us up to this morning in chapter 7. If I could put the whole thing in a nutshell, I would say it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. You see that as Jesus' effort to distill what was going on in the lives of the true disciples versus the lives of the false disciples. You understand that, I think, increasingly. I hope you do. The Spirit gives life. So for those who look back on their Christian experience, their faith experience, and they pinpoint a time at which they made a move, and it's all about that. They ought to be thinking, and maybe that's, you know, you progressively, increasingly thinking, well, the flesh is no help at all. You understand that he's dividing the sheep from the goats here. He's pointing to those who are in Christ and those who are not in Christ, those who are redeemed and those who are not redeemed. And so this really distills it. This just boils it down. It's the Spirit who gives life. So, the masses, the 20 or 30,000 that were following him, listening to his teaching, were proven to be looky loos. They loved the euphoria, the signs, the miracles. They loved the ecstasy. And so, their connection was fleshly, it was entertainment. You know, a good time for you and me to really assess our lives and say, what is it that draws us to the church? What is it that keeps us coming back? Let me get real specific. Are you just as committed to your hobbies as you are the church? I mean, go down the line. Every commitment in your life, are you just as committed to whatever it is, you fill in the blank, as you are Christ and his Church, how much would it take for you to walk away? And really, what we're looking at here is increasingly becoming a kind of people, a group of people, a local body of people whose devotion to Christ is displayed by his work. Right? Jesus told them, The work of God is what? It's that you believe. It's that you believe. That's the work of God. God causes you to be born again. And if you want to be involved in the work of God, believe and believe more and believe more fervently and believe more deeply, more biblically, more accurately, more lovingly in a more spirit-filled way. Increasingly believe. That's the work of God. You can say, God is doing a work in me as you increasingly believe and as your belief works itself out in works. There's a sense in which your life as a Christian is about good works. Good works that are rooted in belief. You do what you do not out of a commitment to perform and to show yourself a good worker. You do what you do because you believe fervently. You must. Paul said it this way I believe, therefore I speak. You know, is it increasingly becoming true of your life that you say what you say, not in an effort to fill? awkward dead time between you and that person, but you say what you say because your heart is bursting with loving, humbling truth, knowing that people's souls are eternal. It ought to be happening. I trust that it is. I trust that as we go into John 7 here that the transition, now follow me here, that the transition in the lives of the disciples as displayed, I think we will begin to see this more and more and more, this transition that's going to start to take place in the lives of the disciples, I trust that that would start to happen more and more and more with you and me. What transition am I talking about? Well, there's a six-month time frame between chapter 7 and chapter 6. What happened during that six months? You ready? Discipleship. It's what we're about, isn't it? I mean, when people ask you about our church, maybe they'll say, well, what, what denomination are you in? And you, you, some of you would say, you know, I don't even know. That's good. <laughs> and for those of you who do know, hopefully you give a good explanation that we're a reformed Baptist church. And you don't wear that as a badge. You just say, yeah, we're reformed soteriologically. We believe in a reformed soteriology. What does that mean? Salvation is of the Lord. Say it that way if you don't like those other words. We believe that salvation is of the Lord. It's not a catchphrase. It's the reality of Calvinistic truth. Salvation is of the Lord. That's what we believe. The Bible says it over and over and over. You see that. You see that in the statement. The flesh is no help at all. The Spirit gives life. So that's what we mean by Reformed. Baptist, all that means is that we have a Baptistic ecclesiology. Again, don't worry about those big words unless you like them. Unless you operate with people who use those words or you're reading good materials that use those words, you need to know what those mean. But if you don't care about those words, that's okay too. But what we mean by a Baptistic ecclesiology is that we believe that baptism is a decision and that it's by immersion. That separates us from our loving brothers in the Presbyterian church who are Reformed, not Baptists. But none of that matters if it doesn't matter in the conversation. It does matter. But what really matters is when people ask you about your church, that you could lovingly and confidently say that we are about duplication. We're about discipleship. We love that lives rub off on lives. That Romans 1.17 tells us that faith comes via faith. Just yesterday, Dominic and I were talking about the impact that a couple of individuals together have had on innumerable lives. I shouldn't say innumerable because I guess guess you could count them, but it's a lot. Man, as I look around the room, and we could say that about so many of you, how is the Lord displaying his glory by producing change in our church? It's through legitimate, imperfect, faithful discipleship. That's the only way it happens. you got to understand, that's why we do everything we do. Everything we do comes down to that. Everything. Gospel-saturated discipleship. It's not just about platitudes. It's not just about talking about what the gospel is. We are to display lives that are impacted by the gospel in that six-month Gap between the end of chapter 6 and the beginning of chapter 7 Jesus spent time investing in these men sometimes you might wonder why did so and so leave the church and it's not usually easy to totally pinpoint that but one thing's for sure effective discipleship did not happen you could say effective evangelism, maybe, and probably happened. Effective evangelism is just an honest display of the person of Christ in one's increasing conformity to his image. That's evangelism. You know, you're bringing the character of Christ to bear upon those who don't have the character of Christ. And you do that imperfectly, but that's evangelism ultimately explaining evangelism has to involve an explanation of the gospel ultimately explaining because you've developed the credibility what it means to be not just conformed to his image but acceptable in God's eyes through the son discipleship will result in that if both parties are actively and vigorously involved but if someone just kind of abandoned the church, and you go, I don't really know what happened there, then what, what we can certainly say without saying was her fault or her fault, his or his, because I don't know that that's always helpful, but we can certainly say that discipleship didn't happen. Effective discipleship did not happen. Whether it was both parties' fault or one or whatever, what we know is that when spiritual maturation happens... When you see it happening, it's because somebody's life has been poured into somebody's life. I mean, the hallmark of our church is that people love people, and they sacrifice for people. I was watching a little bit, and if you haven't watched any of it, it'd be worth your time to watch some of the Cripplegate Conference. These young guys, they were all Master Seminary students back in the day. Four, five, six of them have just kind of stayed together with rich friendships. They write the Cripplegate blogs. They're young guys. They're godly men. They're sharp as can be. They're theologically astute. They're loving shepherds. And just listen to these guys talk in a Q&A about what the Lord is doing in their churches. You know, the moderator asked each of them to explain one thing that they're encouraged by that's going on in their local churches. And the common thread was the people of God. I mean, that's the thing that I most rejoice in. When someone asks me about our church, I talk about the people. I talk about you. You know, last week I mentioned it. I don't know what burnout is like. I know what exhaustion's like. (laughs) But I have no idea what this idea is that, you know, maybe you're just going to give up. Don't worry about that with me. That's not going to happen. I'm not tempted to give up. I'm tempted to fall down sometimes because I'm so tired. But why? Why? How can I stay in the game so readily, so willingly, so vibrantly, so vigorously? It's because of the 11, the 11 men in our leadership, if you want to know the truth. I trust these men implicitly because they're implicitly trustworthy. Trustworthy. I'm trusting that the Lord is going to produce that same integrity and character and, and that being above reproach in other men in our church. That as we continue to grow numerically, that the Lord will provide that increasing joy, that same joy for every person in our church. That your haven is your church, not your swimming pool or your favorite ice cream or you know, Netflix or your favorite book. But your haven is the body of Christ because the body of Christ is that experience. It's the event where you most enjoy Christ. What do I mean by that? You say, I thought it was my quiet time. No, because your quiet time can only be you in the word, which is critical, and you thinking about and enjoying your own personal experience with Christ. It's not that you can't be praying for other believers and thinking about other believers and what's going on in their lives, but talking to and fellowshipping with and discipling and counseling and being counseled by and occasionally correcting and rebuking and occasionally being corrected and rebuked. You're experiencing Christ in his body. That's what we mean when we say we are one with him. We are one with him. And that doesn't happen without vibrant discipleship. Again, looking around the room, I can say about so many of you that your efforts, you know, your life being poured into others has had such obvious impact. We want to see that happen more and more and more. Chapter 6 was set during the Passover, during April. This six-month gap gets closed In September, October, with the Feast of Booths, beginning in chapter 7. John tells us back in chapter 6, verse 4, Now the Passover, the Feast of the Jews, was at hand. Feast of Booths. Now, September, October, Jesus spending all this time in Galilee, ministering to the disciples, really ministering to a lot of people. He's healed perhaps multiple thousands of people. He's displaying his deity, his credibility. What's he doing? You know, what's his will? This won't surprise you, and it'll ring a bell if you've been reading through John, if you've been listening, if you've been in this study with us. What, what has he been doing? What has it been his will to do? Well, not his will, but his will is to do his Father's will. That's what Jesus is doing. He's walking throughout Galilee, north to south, Tyre and Sidon, uh, that whole northern region. What's he doing? Well, he's not just walking. But he's pouring himself into people. When I think of ministry, when I teach in Grace Advance, I spend a lot of time emphasizing this and drawing this truth out of Scripture so that men who are getting ready to either plant a church or go to a struggling church, that's a hard call, that they would be wise about dividing their time. And I think of the three A's. This is how I think of it. And You should too, I think. that First of all, you are approachable. Approachable to everyone that everyone would consider you to be approachable. It's very important for a Christian to be approachable. And then there's this tighter group with whom you are available, right? You can't be available to everybody all the time. just not possible. But then there's this even tighter group with whom you are active. So an approachability, a lesser availability, and then an even lesser activity. Now, I'm active in all of your lives because you hear me speak once a week. And you get an email from me occasionally, uh, once, twice, sometimes three times a week. So I'm active in that way, but I'm really discipling a handful of men. And I'm pouring into my family. That's my concentrated activity. My discipleship efforts are with my sons and with men in the church got a short window of time with these people, with these eternal souls, and, and you say, well, what does that look like? Well, it's, not, it's nothing phenomenal. You know, sometimes we just talk about ministry, other times we're going through a book, but it's critical. You know, if I can't reproduce myself, then I need to back up and have someone else just reproduce themselves in Me, So again, this six-month time frame is so important where Jesus is displaying this approachability and then this availability with a smaller group, but then an activity with an even smaller group. He broadcasts his message far and wide to the multiple thousands, but his life-on-life activity is effective because it's concentrated. Jesus subjected himself to humanity. And by so doing, he had limited time. And so he took that time and he divided it up very, very wisely. Now, what else was Jesus doing? Do we know everything that Jesus was doing? Well, no. John 21, 25 says, Now there are also many other things that Jesus did. He's at the end of his narrative record of the life of Jesus, right? He says there's a lot of other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. John, of course, is speaking hyperbolically. But still, the point is that Jesus did so much, you couldn't really keep track of it all. So the biblical record is not exhaustive. You need to understand that about your Bible. The Bible doesn't contain everything there is to know. It's not an exhaustive record of everything, nor is it an exhaustive manual on every detail of life. What it is, is a perfect record of exactly what we need to know, and a spirit-filled manual with exactly what we need to know in response. It's not exhaustive, and it doesn't claim to be. Far better, it's perfect. Go back to verse 24 in John 21. This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things. And we know that his testimony, listen, is true. It's true. The testimony of this disciple, uh, John speaking of himself, this testimony, the testimony of Jesus is true. It's right, it's exacting, it's perfect. It's everything you need. People will say things like the Bible is more than you'll ever need to answer all of life's questions. That is not true. In fact, it's silly. What is true is that it's exactly what you need for all things pertaining to life and godliness, according to the Apostle Peter. John says in John 20, 30, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in His name. So what we have is written, and it's written in perfection such that you have everything pertaining to life, eternal and earthly, but also everything related to godliness, to being conformed, the character of the God-man. Well, look with me at chapter 7, verses 1 to 13. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand, so his brothers said to him, "'Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you're doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly.'" If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I'm not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, Where is he? And There was much muttering about him among the people. Well, some said he's a good man. Others said, No, he is leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. We'll see that Jesus displays confidence in his father's wise will while defying his family's unwise counsel so that we will do the same. The idolatry of the family impacts every culture. Many times a person, even a person who is in Christ, is under the impression that his most basic role in life is to have a devotion to his siblings or his parents or his children. Of course, there's a critical duty there, right? Paul says if you're If you're not providing for your family, you're worse than an unbeliever. And that really is the abrupt starting place for every man to think about his role in his family. But that comes on the heels of understanding what it means to be a faithful Christian, a faithful member of the body of Christ. The faithful member of the body of Christ who happens to be a father is so clearly and evidently devoted to Christ and his body that his family is impacted by that. His family knows that his life's devotion is not water skiing or pool or baseball or video games or whatever it may be. His family looks on and says, my dad has a number of interests but his primary design in life is to lead me by example to the Savior via the body of Christ. That is a family man. You know, the guy that has this hierarchical list in his life, it says, well, God first, then my family, then the church, then my job. It's just too oversimplified for biblical thinking. The right way to think about this is that making Christ first in all things, Colossians 1, making Christ first in all things displays the reality that he's preeminent in every corner of your heart. And if he's preeminent in every corner of your heart, then developing a schedule in your life won't be so much like dividing your priorities or dividing your homage It will simply be dividing your time, and you won't be manipulated by the person who says, well, how can your church be more important than your family? That's just an invalid question. What we ought to say is that Christ has first importance in everything, and I trust him to give me the wisdom to divide my time in such a way that everybody in my life is effectively impacted by all that I'm doing for his glory. So the so that statement comes down to you and I doing the same thing that Jesus is doing. That he is graciously and lovingly, by example and by word, displaying, really drawing attention to the fact that his brothers are not his brothers. Uh, some people uh, are so black and white they can't handle a statement like that. You know, they ask you a question and you say yes and no. And with time, you hopefully can help that person realize that there is a legitimate yes answer to that question and there's a legitimate no answer to that question. What we're saying here is that while they are clearly his biological brothers, they are not his spiritual brothers. We need to do the same. We need to do the same. By our life's example, your children, your siblings, your spouse, your parents, whoever it is in your life must know that your primary and really every devotion is to God's glory. They'll know. Well, in an effort to display this, point number one, Jesus defies bad counsel from his brothers, unwise worry. Jesus defies Bad counsel from his brother's unwise worry. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. During the six month interval, we know from Matthew and Mark that he traveled, ministered, and performed signs and miracles throughout all Galilee. This is when he would feed the 4,000 in Matthew 15, not the same account where he had previously fed the 5,000. His emphasis during that time was intense life on life discipleship. Matthew 16 records some of this for us. Matthew 16, 13. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? See, that's a discipleship question. Who do you say that Christ is? right? You're having a discipleship interaction with someone, and you ask the question, so who do the people that you work with say that Christ is? And they answer that question, you say, but who do you say he is? This is what Jesus is doing here. He's tightening the focus upon their faith. Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, But my Father who is in heaven, remember, the flesh is what? It's useless. The Spirit gives life, right? So the person who rests upon his having done something to understand or bring himself to the Father through the Son, his efforts were useless. But in his pride, he's so hung up on this that he comes across a passage, even as clear-cut as this, and he somehow finds a way to deny it. I tell you, Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was The Christ, And so you see the same flavor in our text this morning, that there was a private effort upon the part of Jesus. He was tightening his ministry efforts. He was not engaging so much in that public conduct. And here he even displays, he really clearly states the fact that he's going to set his focus on being more private in his ministry efforts. I think you'll understand that more as we get through this. Who did Jesus really pour himself into while he was in Galilee? Well, he ministered to a lot of people, but Peter and James and John are the only three who experienced the Mount of Transfiguration, observing Jesus' earthly glorification. And John is the only one who made this statement. He referred to himself not as John, but as the one whom Jesus loved. And John was by no means saying that he loved me more than others. He just kind of boiled it down to that's what matters. I know that Jesus loves me and that's really all I care about with regard to how I might be known. John wasn't concerned about being known as an apostle uh, or a preacher or a pastor or really anything else, uh, or at least to whatever degree he was concerned about those things, it was far, those things were far secondary to his desire to simply be known as the one whom Jesus loved. And so discipleship here is displayed as the standard by which every believer must be measured. I hope you take that home with you, that you will measure your life by your effectiveness in discipleship. Who's following you? Who are you following? Every faithful church is measured by its discipleship, and every faithful believer is measured by his or her discipleship. Jesus was available to some, approachable to everyone, available to some, but active in the lives of few. And you may be wondering how I do that. You may be wondering how you should do that. And there are plenty of people in our church that you could go to, but I'm, I can just tell you it's, it's real simple for me. Those who want to be faithful, you want time with me? You got it. I have no problem telling you that I am very, very hesitant to counsel someone who's not willing to involve himself in our discipleship. Why? Because he's saying no to God's design, and he's saying, but I want something more focused on me. Will I do that? Absolutely. A time or two. But I will not lengthily pour my life into someone who is not faithful to Christ and his church in the most basic of responsibilities. This is what Jesus was looking for. And this was surfacing much more rapidly and clearly in the lives of James and Peter and John. Why do you think he wanted them to pray with him more than the others? 1 Corinthians 11, verse 1. Imitate me. You know, you ought to be able to say this to people. Imitate me. Follow me. As I follow Christ. Follow me into my confession. Into my repentance. Help me know where I need to display that. Paul was not above correction. Rebuke. Hebrews 13.7 says, Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. It's the priority of every faithful church to be saturated in life-on-life discipleship. And it is the priority of every faithful believer to be saturated in life-on-life discipleship. Now our text goes on to say, he would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand, so his brothers said to him, leave here and go to Judea that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. The Feast of the Booths was also called the Feast of Tabernacles, and there would have been thousands upon thousands of people in Jerusalem. This was, according to Josephus, the most popular feast. More Jews would have gathered from Uh, surrounding regions to be there for this. And so his brothers were thinking, well, with all that's gone on up to this point, with people walking away from him, if you want people to follow you, go where the people are. You know? That's why when there's a huge convention for whatever industry, you see lots of people promoting their products at that convention. Why? More people interested in the same industry. And so his brothers, knowing this mindset, were persuaded to try to persuade him to go where the people were, they very likely were concerned that his ministry effectiveness was dwindling. And there's a sense in which it was. His faithfulness and his effectiveness to display and fulfill God's will was not. But if the goal was increasing numbers, which for him it wasn't, then clearly it was a failure, which it wasn't. According to Zechariah 14, the Feast of Booths will be celebrated again in the millennial kingdom. And the idea here is that people would gather for the sake of somewhat of a sacrificial time where they would live in tents, they would live in booths. Why? To remind themselves of their nomadic history, that the people of Israel lived in tents, they lived in booths, they lived in temporary lodging. And so this was an expression of their desire to be faithful to the Lord, to remember what their forefathers had been through. And in doing that, of course, many people wanting to fulfill that obligation, knowing that there would be some sort of consequence. If they didn't, then a lot of people were committed to doing it. If you go to John 11, verse 45, John tells us that many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. And so while there were so many people in this experience, so many people, uh, the same in John 11, uh, with the festival that's going on at that time, uh, many people were believing him, but many people were attempting to draw attention to him so that they would put a stop to him. Verse 49, But one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all. Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And in some sense, Jesus would die as a result of his decreasing popularity. There weren't so many people to defend him, but rather many more people were willing to cry out for Barabbas. And that Jesus would be crucified. Verse 52 says, And not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Now listen closely. Verse 54, I'm, I'm in John 11. Now, the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. So while his discipleship ministry to the 12 was displaying substantial influence, one group of followers was not yet persuaded, either in our text this morning or in John 11, and that was his biological half-brothers. So they were somewhat of a microcosmic expression of what was going on in the society, Willing to follow, but not willing to ultimately follow. Not willing to deny themselves. Not willing to take up the cross. They were perfectly happy being fed by him. Perfectly willing to enjoy the ecstasy that would take place in the doing of the sign gifts. And by the way, these are not his cousins, as your Roman Catholic friend might want you to believe. Why would he want you to believe that? to promote and defend the false doctrine of the perpetual virginity of Mary. Adelphoi means brothers. Other texts tell us that he had sisters. And so the Roman Catholic effort to blur this, or really to negate it, is to say that the word here means cousins. There's another word that means cousin, and guess how it's translated? Cousin. These were his brothers. They were his biological brothers, but verse 5 says, for not even his brothers believed in him. Why would, they, why would they care? Well, he was their meal ticket. So any degrading of him publicly, any decrease of his ministry effectiveness could certainly have resulted in a difficulty, some sort of hardship for them. Here's what they thought of him, though. Mark 3, verse 20. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. Maybe you can relate. Maybe your family thinks you're out of your mind. You're in good company. Now, don't be crazy. right? Don't be obnoxious. Don't stick a finger in people's eye just to be able to say, well, I walk with Jesus. That doesn't help. Be humble. You know? And if you've lost credibility, then just stop and trust the Lord to make that change. The Lord ought to be softening you. Did Jesus just get in the disciples' faces? Did he just get in the... In the masses' faces all the time? Well, if you read Matthew 23, you'll see, no, there was a tighter focus. Who did Jesus call the brood of vipers? Not all the Jews, just the Jewish leaders. So he was very careful about what he said and to whom he said it. I'm much more vexed about the false pastor than I am the false believer, right? Because that's the guy who knows better, and he's doing whatever he's doing just to make a buck and drive a Mercedes. That's why he does what he does. But the people who follow him often truly don't know better. And we must be soft-hearted toward them. John 6.14 says when the people saw this, you remember this, we've been through this, when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So don't be perplexed by Jesus' willingness to not have this massive worldwide ministry. That wouldn't have been best. What he wanted was a tighter, focused, effective ministry. Verse 7, the world cannot hate you. And he's speaking to his biological brothers, right? The world cannot hate you. This is exactly the opposite of what he tells the regenerate disciples. What does he say to the regenerate disciples? The world does hate you. Why? The world hates him. You see this line that's being drawn between the believer and the unbeliever? How shocking that he would say to his physiological brothers, his little brothers, his younger brothers, how offensive. The world can't hate you. But he's saying to those who actually believe, the world must hate you. Why? Because it hates me. His biological brothers. No, the world can't hate you. Hates me. Because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I'm not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. There's no mystery there. It's just a matter of timing. Jesus is doing his Father's will. He's waiting for the right timing. He's doing what he's supposed to be doing in the right timing. And the other things that he must do will come in the right timing. He's being patient. Verse 9 says, after saying this, he remained in Galilee. Now, point number two, Jesus displays bold confidence in his father's wise will. He's not only been willing to reject his brother's unwise counsel, which is rooted in anxiety. Well, he is so because he has confidence in his father. Which again is why he has said numerous times, I come not to do my will, but my Father's will. And so his will was to do his Father's will. Is that your will? Is it your will to do the Father's will? See, that's among the greatest of anxiety destroyers. Or are you off on some tangent? Are you off... Developing your career or doing something that could eventually and very likely may have significant impact on people's lives, but not eternal. Unless your primary and fundamental and foundational devotion is to do the Father's will in that career. See that? Don't get sidetracked. Jesus displays bold confidence. It's a humble confidence in the perfections of his father's wise will. Verse 10 says, But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. There's a couple things going on here. One, it seems sort of abrupt. Wait a minute. He just wasn't going. Now he is going. God's timing. Not a whole lot here except for the fact that he wasn't moved by fear of man, right? He could have easily said, man, my brothers are kind of bearing down on me. You know, I love my brothers. um, I'll just go hang out with them. I'll do what they say. Why not? Maybe win some sort of, some measure of favor with them. But he wasn't influenced. Now listen, watch closely. He also wasn't influenced to say, I probably better wait a little while longer just so they know I didn't change my mind and follow and go with them. (laughs) He left nearly immediately after they left with no concern of the fear of man, no concern about what they thought about that. Also, as you can see, it was not public. It was private. This was intentional. This was so as to involve himself in that laser-like focused involvement in somebody's lives, particular people's lives. The application of the theology of this passage is ridiculously easy. As we like to say in the pastorate, the meat is falling off the bone there's scarcely a line between the orthodoxy and the orthopraxy, the doctrine and the practice of that doctrine. It's just too easy to to point out what Jesus would have happened in your life, in my life. Not only was he not moved in a secular or fleshly way to be increasingly popular. He was committed to the legitimate experience of a personal investment, particular investment, engaging in particular people's lives. It says the Jews, and and you know from our previous studies, that most often... In John, the term the Jews refers to the leadership, and you see that in this text in that there's a separation between the Jews and the people, right? You've noticed that as you've been reading this. He refers to the Jews, and he refers to the people. So when he refers to the Jews, his effort is to say that these are the leaders of the Jews. And so here, the Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? Well, he didn't want them to know where he was, because it wasn't the time for him to have some sort of public altercation with them. That interaction would necessarily come later in God's perfect timing. Verse 12, And there was much muttering about him among the people. Well, some said he's a good man. Others said, no, he's leading people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. No one was speaking openly of him. So the Jews, in their willingness, you you know this, the, the Jews, the Pharisees, their effort was to bind up, to create unnecessary burdens. They would tie them up and place them on the people, and they were intentionally unbearable. Why? Why would they do that? Why would they want people to experience the discouragement of being unable to accomplish what they are being told to accomplish so that they could stand In separation from them, feigning completion. This is what Roman Catholic priests do. They want you to think that they don't sin. They have no reason for confession because they're above that. How odd is it that they refer to people as saints, most of whom, very likely all of whom, are not even in Christ, rather than using the term for those to whom it applies? The saints are the church. They're those who set apart for godliness, set apart for holiness, set apart for humility and faithfulness and love and joy. You know, that koinonia interaction within the body. Those are the saints. You're the saints. The body of Christ is the saints. And yet the Roman Catholic Church, much like those imprisoned in Judaism in this era as Jesus walked the earth, experience the imprisonment of having a, a burden infinitely too heavy to bear. It's a list of do's and don'ts. And so John says, for fear of those people, for fear of the Jews... No one spoke openly of him. We're not there yet, but when we get to John nine, you're going to see this in a very colorful form with the man who was born blind that Jesus healed. You know, his parents tell the Jews, "Ask him," because they're pressing. The Jews are pressing his parents. You know what's going on here? They say, "Ask him. Why, Why are you asking us? Ask him. He's of age. He will speak for himself." John nine twenty two, his parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. And so this was pervasively true in the Jewish leadership. The instant you got out of line with regard to their religious requirements, their unbearable burdens, if you were to display a willingness to legitimately follow the true Messiah, you wouldn't be allowed back into the synagogue. Is this not just amazingly helpful and practical for your life? I've said it many times, but I was not aware. I I couldn't have measured The influence that doing a study on the person of Christ in the book of John would have on me and you. But at the same time, is it not mind-numbing that his brothers who lived with him, they grew up with him, they saw, they knew that he never sinned, and they rejected him spiritually. The text tells us they did not believe in him. Well, among those brothers was James. As we've looked at Jesus' willingness to defy James' bad counsel resultant from James' worry and then we see Jesus' display of bold confidence in his Father's wise will. Another thing that you see in this text without it being explicitly stated is Jesus' patience. Who are you discipling? And how patient are you with them? Jesus' brother who had rejected him, who didn't believe in him, who worried, who exhibited anxiety, who wanted him to go to Judea where his ministry would be built numerically rather than in Galilee. It's the record of the life of James. James 2, verse 1. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold The faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. What happened? What happened? Did James figure it out? No. (laughs) No, no, no. Because the flesh is no help at all. It's the Spirit who gives life. When, how, Where, by what means, does the Spirit give life through a willingness to love people with our lives, much like Jesus did in his patience, resulting in James' willingness to call him the Lord of glory, our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we rest in this great truth that you are sovereign. And we ask even now that Our lives would reflect a deep trust in you, that we would display trust and hope and faith and patience, that we would not be moved by impulse to do that which would gain favor with men, but that we would be moved by your sovereign will, that your will is good. Lord, we want so much to be useful in people's lives where we haven't, where we've been obnoxious, less than useful, impatient, unwilling to trust that you will do the work in your timing, unwilling to acknowledge that the flesh is no help at all. Lord, help us to be genuinely repentant soft-hearted toward the unbeliever, not hard-hearted, but soft-hearted, compassionate, even as you have been compassionate with us, forgiving, even as you have been forgiving with us. We ask these things for your glory because of your Son, who is the Lord of glory. Amen.